Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Have you ever been in the middle of something and suddenly stopped and thought, why am I doing this? We humans have such a tendency to follow rabbit trails that this is an all-too-common experience. This thought is usually accompanied by the realization that you're wasting money, or wasting time, or never going to win. So why are you engaged in this thing? Unfortunately, from time to time, you may have this revelation and still be forced to concede defeat. I'm in too deep to stop now. For whatever reason, this seems to be the infinite loop that science and technology today seems to either find itself in of its own accord, or has been placed in by the commands of their respective overlords. On today's episode, we're going to take a peek at situations that could really use a voice of reason, someone to step in, hand raised, and say, hold up a minute. First, we're going to gain a deeper understanding of ask a silly question, get a silly answer, then we'll be forced to accept a solution that won't work for a problem that doesn't exist to save people that don't want it, and then we'll find out what it means to be book smart and head dumb. And seeing as we're this far in, it's too late to back out now, so uh, here we go. One of the first things babies learn to say is why. And it's so cute, and we answer in our little baby talk, and we tell them why. And then they get a little older and keep asking why, and we do our best to answer. And then a a little older, and they won't stop asking why, and we try to stay patient. But there comes a point where we just desperately need them to stop, if only for five minutes, and that's generally when Dad needs to use the bathroom. Unfortunately, there seems to be a point these days where the general population stops asking why almost entirely, and changes their favorite question to what. As in, what do you want me to do, and what will I be paid, and what's in it for me? And maybe it would be good if we returned as a populace to asking why. Why do you want me to do this? Why would I want to do this, regardless of how much you're willing to pay me? Why should I put myself at risk? And so on. This should be a relatively short article review, we know how that goes, but reading the headline had me asking one question, one that I doubt most people would ask, and if you've been paying attention, you know what that is. Why? From the scientificamerican.com headline, New Research Decodes the Sea Cow's Hidden Language. Okay, sounds interesting. It at least caught my attention enough to make me pause and read the article. But why? Why are we decoding this language? This article is a transcript of the Scientific American's 60-second science audio spot, which ironically enough was 5 minutes and 14 seconds long. Maybe it should be called the Scientific American's 314-second science show, but something I haven't done in a number of episodes here lately, I digress. The interviewer, Ashley Papp, is interviewing the interviewee, Beth Brady, who is coincidentally and concurrently being interviewed by the interviewer. Sorry. Dr. Brady is a postdoctoral research fellow with Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium in the Manatee Research Department, which is fortunate since this research had to do with the manatee, or the sea cow. So Ms. Papp, as an intro, plays some squeaky sounds, which are the sounds of the sea cow. She reveals to us that they make these sounds, well, pretty much like other mammals, and they probably make them for uh, pretty much the same general reason that other animals make sounds, and very similar to how we would think a house pet tells the owner, well, okay, I don't want to offend all my PETA listeners, how a companion tells its guardian what it wants. Then she brings in the expert who backs up Ms. Papp's assertion that sea cows make different sounds, just like other animals, for various reasons, just like other animals. Now we get to one of my favorite lines in the article. Here, let me quote this directly. Quote, All in all, Brady and her team spent about seven years recording manatee vocalizations. Seven. Seven years. They paddled kayaks around manatee hangouts and dropped a microphone in the water to listen to them. 
They recorded what the manatees were doing when making sounds. Then they analyzed the sounds, the pitch, the duration. Seven years. For seven, seven years. Their conclusion, the manatee has three basic types of sounds. And since they had notes on what the manatee was doing, they can try to pick out patterns and determine what the sounds mean. So on to the findings. A squeal was the most often heard sound, and it was typically heard during uh, adult cow time. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, so pretty much the same as humans. Then there was a squeak, generally heard when the manatee was stressed, probably from being bonked in the head by a microphone, that would be my guess. And again, I hear this around the office or in my office coming from me. So, you know, the same as humans, pretty much. Then there was a high squeak, which is not a squeak, and God help you if you try to call it a squeak. And this squeak, ah, this high squeak is generally used between a mother and her calf. So high squeaks are generally yelling, again, like in the human world. Got it. But now we get to the payoff. Why are they doing this? The question that nobody asks but should. Why would we do this research? For seven years, what is the benefit? How will this contribute to the betterment of society and life for all on the planet? Well, quote, this new information is useful in a lot of different ways. Oh, good. They apparently call the manatee a keystone species, meaning if they see how the manatee is doing, they can, quote, infer a lot more about the overall health of the coastal Florida ecosystem. Okay, so you can't know about the ecosystem unless you know what the sea cows are saying when they squeak. But before I become jaded, Dr. Brady gives us an example. Quote, Case in point, there's a lot of seagrass missing from over in the Indian River Lagoon area and a lot of manatees unfortunately perishing due to this, but seagrasses are also important for other species. You have sport and game fish who use seagrass beds for juvenile nurseries. You have other animals such as seahorses who use that and it's food for turtles as well. So when you lose manatees, it's also an indicator for the general health of an ecosystem. So, so see, Squee squeaking or high, or high squeaking, I didn't. Then Ms. Papp chimes in, probably because she just heard the same justification as you and I did for learning what does the cow say? And wanted to try to rescue the burning, plummeting airplane wreckage that she now recognizes this interview has become. Quote, there's also the issue of climate change. Marine ecosystems are changing rapidly around the world because of it. Understanding the manatee's hidden language might offer us a sonic warning system that we never knew existed. Oh, maybe an Al Gore manatee, which, side note, Al, with all his cutting out of meat and probably biking everywhere to save the planet, he's looking a little sea cowish uh, himself these days. But maybe we'll have an Al Gore manatee that will tell us through his squeaks and high squeaks, and hopefully not squeals, that we're destroying the planet. I mean, come on, the last thing I need is more cows high squeaking at me about the thermostat setting at the house. Dr. Brady apparently taking the clue that maybe the answer to why study the language should have something to do with studying the language finishes up with the fact that maybe what they learn about these manatees could help understand and protect uh, other manatees around the world. Although she admits that they don't actually know if manatees use a universal language. Uh, so, uh... But what we do know after seven years and a team is, quote, we're starting to understand that there's a lot more to manatee squeaking and squealing than pure chatter. Oh, and there you have it. When asking why, there's literally no answer. Seven years, a team, salaries, expenses, donations, federal and state grants, and literally not one actual useful purpose. This is essentially a group of researchers figuring out what they can research in order to get paid. And that's all it appears to be. So why worry about this? I guess I wouldn't say I'm worried about it. I just fail to find the point. Again, why? So look, I know that all things work to ultimately bring God glory. If that weren't true, then God would cease to be God. Everything must glorify someone or something, or to put it differently using a synonym, everything honors someone or something. 
we may do something that brings us honor, and at the same time, it brings honor to God. Think of a missionary or a pastor. Their diligence, their hard work, their dedication can bring them honor, regardless of if they desire the accolades or not. But they are striving to honor God. A person may be the star employee in their company, which may bring that person honor. It also shows honor to the employer, and from an ultimate sense, it honors God, even regardless of that person's salvation status or view of God. And since God is sovereign, since he is the highest being in existence, all things must ultimately bring him glory and honor. If anything doesn't ultimately do that, that means that whatever that rogue thing brings honor to is in fact higher than God at that moment. And then everything collapses in on itself and poof! And this has nothing to do with if we, in our limited earthly view, perceive something as good or evil. So that long, probably confusing explanation to say, even studying what the sea cow noises mean, for no discernible purpose, somehow ultimately brings God glory. Now that said, I look at this like I look at all the massive amounts of money spent on researching things for the sake of researching things. If you're good at writing up a scope, you can pretty much get a government grant to research anything. And since the government has no money of its own, these grants are literally the money taken from the taxpayer. God calls us to be good stewards with our money, and this should also apply to governments, philanthropists, employers, and everyone that handles money. I don't know how much was spent on this little seven-year and it's still really not done yet, project, but from the Moat Marine Laboratory financial statement of 2019, we can see that nearly $7.2 million was used for funding research projects, and just under another $1 million for payroll. And although I couldn't find how much, I know that this particular research was awarded a Florida Atlantic University GRIP grant, and likely got other grants and funding from various places, including our tax dollars. Additionally, is sitting in kayaks for seven years to record sounds and actions, then sitting in front of computers to analyze the sounds for apparently no reason except to say, look what we did. Is that a good stewardship of time? Bottom line, myself included, I know that we all waste money. We all waste time. None of us are always perfectly on point in our work lives, our personal lives, our spiritual lives. But how much time and money are we wasting? Although I can legitimately say that we should have a plan for being productive every minute of every day, I'd never expect myself or anyone to do that. But stories like these make me wonder, what could this money have been used for? Take the religious aspect out of it even. Who could this money have helped? How could the time spent by this team been used better to actually benefit society or help humanity? God has blessed each one of us with a variety of skills and a variety of incomes and a set amount of time. When you think about it, we all run out of time eventually, some sooner, some later. There comes a point in every life when the skills you have are less sharp, less usable, or in some cases, no longer usable anymore. And no matter how some try, we'll never take our money with us, and we have no use for it in the afterlife. Now, God does command us to provide for our family. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And in context, this is in the middle of a section talking about widows. So we must steward our money accordingly in life and in death. And although some will argue that we're building barns by saving money or making investments, I see nothing in the Bible that says leaving an inheritance to family is wrong. 1 Timothy 5 would argue against that from how I read it. We are just not to put our faith, trust, hope, and reliance in our money. It should be viewed as a tool and as a blessing from God. That said, all we have belongs to God. Now, I fall into the camp that believes that tithing is not a New Testament command. That was an Old Testament system equating to around 30% of your income and paid similarly to how we pay taxes today. However, as Paul told the Corinthians, and thus us, in 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Nowhere in this chapter, or any chapter of the New Testament, do we see anyone command that the members of these new churches tithe 10%. You know, follow the law, or follow Abraham's example when he gave to Melchizedek. Rather, they are to give cheerfully from the heart. Personally, I think 10% is a good starting point, but I also caveat that with 
if you can. A relatively small amount of people legitimately cannot afford to give anything. We all have to decide what we will or won't give, and what we will or won't use our money on. It's something we need to think through carefully. So I guess my point in choosing this article is, like in most cases, to poke a little fun, maybe get a few laughs from you, to point out the illogical nature on full display of this research project, and to make you think, as these make me think, what am I doing with and how am I stewarding the blessings that God has given me? One of the hardest things to do is to admit defeat. We all have to do it from time to time, but knowing that doesn't really make it any easier. Whether it's trying to get that girl to like you or trying to make the team or be the soloist or the first chair or just a wide variety of other things that we all try to do, eventually, sometimes you have to just admit it just ain't going to happen. Unfortunately, some never seem to get that message. They may have someone encouraging or egging them on. They may have a delusional worldview, or they may just really believe the bald-faced lie that we've been telling kids for generations. You can do and be anything you want. Now, not the point of this review, but uh, no, you can't. Some people are better at math, some are more artistic, some people can sing, and some people can't do those things. Some people are born more athletic, some people aren't. The reality is we simply cannot do or be anything that our little hearts desire. We can do or be anything we want within the boundaries of our intelligence, our abilities, and our gifts. This is really the life lesson we should be teaching our kids, not filling their heads full of fantasy. It's okay to be realistic and encouraging at the same time, unless you're some sort of a sadistic person or parent that wants your kid featured in those first few audition videos from American Idol. <clears throat> but as I often do, <laughs> I digress. This is really how I look at the current reality of electrifying pretty much everything, specifically cars in this instance. I have no problem with companies making electric cars. I have no problem with people wanting to buy electric cars. As much as I absolutely have no interest in owning one, I have no problem with a natural progression to 100% all electric cars over time because it simply turned out to be the logical thing to do. I do have a problem with an out-of-control, borderline maniacal government bureaucracy spurred on by, I don't know, power, control, money, and definitely faulty and I would go as far as to say criminally manipulated science and data. But with dear leader, President Child Toucher, this is what we've got. A desire, not by him as he's been out to lunch mentally since before he took office, but by his handlers and overlords, to have 50% of all car sales in the U.S. be electric vehicles, or EVs, by 2030. Now look, I've done some reviews about electric vehicles and the overtaxed and incapable power grid and the insanity of our emperor just waving his dismissive hand saying, make it so, on past episodes that I know you're all familiar with. And if you're not, what are you doing with your life? How could you not be going back to binge listen to past episodes? I mean, this is fairly early on in this podcast. It'll take you no time to catch up. But as interesting articles come out with additional details bolstering my case that what we're doing may be in the right direction in the long run, but it's being forced, and forced too fast for it to ever work, I feel the need to cover them. And just to bring this up front, this will not be a religious commentary. As I've said in my intro episode, not every review will be faith-based, and this is one where nothing immoral or unethical is being done. It's, it's just, well, stupid. And, and if you'd like, I do have faith-based looks at the push to go all-electric in past episodes. Again, you can check those out. From carscoops.com, headline, ICE cars more reliable than electric cars, study shows. So first, just a bit of housekeeping, ICE stands for internal combustion engine, so think gas or diesel. So the article starts with, and forgive me if I grab the wrong fallacy, I believe this is a post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, which is basically just drawing an incorrect conclusion as the effect of a prior assumption or action. The first sentence states, quote, electric cars have always been thought to be more reliable than gasoline or diesel powered vehicles. After all, EVs have fewer moving parts as well as less volatile liquids to carry around. 
Okay, so it is true that traditional vehicles carry fuel. Although diesel and oil are not really volatile, only gasoline is actually volatile, but I think we've all seen the EV batteries burning and burning and burning. In fact, you can read a couple articles linked in the notes, but a typical gasoline car fire takes about 500 to 1,000 gallons of water to extinguish in a relatively short amount of time. And when the fire is out, it's out. For any electric vehicle, due to the lithium batteries, fire departments are seeing 20,000 to 40,000 gallons of water being used and hours upon hours of time to extinguish an EV fire of which a lot of that time is simply monitoring because lithium can reignite long after the fire was thought to be extinguished. So I think I'd have to argue that premise of this fallacious argument. Second, although I absolutely agree that EVs have far fewer moving parts than ICE vehicles, those parts are almost entirely contained in the drivetrain, the engine, the transmission, the driveline. Other than that, both types need a suspension, they need wheel bearings, they need braking systems, etc. And let's be honest, the drivetrain of current ICE vehicles are pretty reliable, going 100, 200, sometimes 500,000 miles before having problems. Additionally, per the Scientific American, the average EV requires about 2,000 computer chips, which is about double that of a non-EV. In fact, Ford just recently announced that they'd be shipping their Ford Explorers without the rear heat and AC controls because of the current chip shortage. That's probably not a lot of chips, but spread over, say, 200,000 plus vehicles. If those controls take well, let's say two chips each, and an explorer takes about a thousand chips to build, that's another 400 explorers they can ship. I mean, you know, it all adds up. And there are a variety of conveniences that we could realistically eliminate and still make a safe, operable car. How many chips could you remove from an EV before it's undrivable? It's a nearly 100% computer, thus chip, controlled car. Even just thrusting the door handle at you as you walk up is a computer function requiring probably at least a couple chips to control, and without that you'd be clawing at the very smooth and sleek car trying to get in while the zombies bear down on you. And as we all know, ain't nobody got time for that. And based on what I'd call questionable at best assumptions, the faulty conclusion is presented as fact. Quote, electric cars have always been thought to be more reliable. To which I'd ask, have they? I mean, maybe a segment of the population but I guarantee this is not thought by all. There's actually a fairly substantial segment of the population, me included, that doesn't believe more computers equals more reliable. But that's only because I, you know, use computers, and I've built computers, and I've dealt with computers, and although I love computers, I absolutely loathe computers. Now, in a gasoline vehicle, quite often a fault will result in a limp home mode, as all a gas car needs is oxygen, gas, and spark. A massive amount of systems can be shut down, and that engine will still run, even if it's slow, just to get you somewhere safe. Now, EVs do have some sort of limp modes, but from what I'm finding, it's a crippling mode. Owners are talking of reduced power, not allowing them to even get up a small incline, and no ability to charge the car, or even start the car rolling if they stop. When you control everything via computer, it doesn't take much to shut the system down. So this article goes on to give some data from a survey in the UK which found 39% of EV owners reported problems in the first four years of ownership as compared to 19% of gas and 29% of diesel vehicle owners. Additionally, they found that the average repair time for the most common problem, as it turns out software related for the EVs, was about five days for EVs compared to three days for gas and four days for diesel. The editor for the survey made this statement after the data was analyzed, quote, We know that drivers are keen to make the move to more environmentally friendly cars, but it is vital that they are getting a quality product. Okay, as much as I'd like to, I'm not going to break that down, but I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that no, I and many like me have literally no desire to move to a more environmentally friendly car. If what I want, with the power I want, with the features I want, gets better gas mileage than the car I'm replacing, fine. It's a win for everyone. 
But if it doesn't, huh, I'm not buying my car based on the gas mileage. So some drivers are keen to move that way. In fact, when you look at the global sales year over year, you do find that in 2012, about 60,000 purely battery-powered EVs were sold, and the numbers have gone up every year, reaching about 2.25 million in 2020 and 4.8 million in 2021. But that still equates to only 2.9% of all vehicle sales in 2020 and 5.9% in 2021. So it's grown, but that still leaves well over 90% of all cars purchased in the world in 2021 as gas or diesel. So I guess we'd probably have to qualify what we mean by keen. The reality of the situation right now is that EVs are a niche market. They have more use in cities and smaller communities as short commuters and in more compact countries, you know, like a lot of what you'll find in Europe. For a massive percentage of the United States, EVs are simply impractical. Case in point, for me to drive to my parents' house, it takes me about 13 to 13 and a half hours to drive the 840 miles. That includes typically two stops for gas, potty, and snacks. <laughs> so many snacks. Sometimes it takes three stops, but that's usually a quick potty break. I can choose to stop many, many places. I can avail myself of dozens of gas pumps in order to fill the car in about five minutes. And then when I'm ready, I can drive another 350 or so miles. Now, looking at my route with a Tesla Model S long range on abetterroutplanner.com, starting the day with 90% charge, not letting the car dip below 15% charge, and ending at my parents at no less than 33% charge. And yes, these are all factors you can set in the website. It shows that I need 15 hours and 7 minutes, which includes one hour, 47 minutes for four charges. Now I say I want to have at least 33% charge when I arrive as it's a small town and there isn't a charger, super or otherwise, anywhere around there. So I'd have to, uh, I don't even know, plug it into the wall socket? I'm not sure, can you even do that? I, I don't know. Now I can argue that time equals money and it does, but at one point I had to drive about 16 hours to get to my parents' house. And I can tell you that time equals fatigue. The argument is that with more and longer stops, you'll refresh, but <laughs> no, you won't. Maybe for a few minutes, but fatigue sets in and doesn't go away. So maybe time equals safety? Those one and a half to two hours I save by driving a gasoline vehicle is much more important than the surface look of the minutes saved. Another argument for EVs is that they'll save you money in the long run. Okay, well, let's test that theory. I found a cost of ownership calculator on kemut.com that allows you to compare an EV with an ICE vehicle. You can find the link in the notes and play with the calculator. But I tried a number of different ICE vehicles and the results were generally the same. So to try to keep things as apples to apples as possible, I compared a 2021 Tesla Model S long range with a BMW 330i with an automatic transmission at about 25 miles per gallon as this is the car that's been stated to be the most comparable ICE car to the Model S. I put in an annual mileage of 15,000 using premium fuel for the Beamer. The calculator does some calculations for the cost over the next five years, incrementing the cost of gas and the cost of electricity upward each year. It factors in depreciation, insurance costs, finance costs, maintenance costs, and it spits out a number of different graphs and charts. But the bottom line, the BMW would have a projected cost after five years of 81 cents per mile, while the Tesla would have a cost of $1.20 per mile. That equates over five years and 75,000 miles to a cost of $30,000 more for the Tesla over the BMW. Now you can play around with different car combos. This is just one example. Just do your best to use comparable cars. Now what I wish they would have done is to go out farther say to the first battery replacement? The Tesla battery has a warranty of eight years or 100,000 to 150,000 miles depending on the model. And if you need to replace that battery after the warranty runs out, <laughs> and you will, it'll run you between 13,000 and $20,000 to get that done. For just about any ICE vehicle, you could replace the engine, the transmission, and probably anything else that goes into the drivetrain for less than the 13000 So cost of ownership really needs to figure in the entire cost of ownership. This also raises the question, what about the resale market? Are you willing to buy a 10-year-old 100,000-mile Tesla 
with the original battery? <laughs> I'm not. So the conclusions of the article stated by the editor first of the study, quote, with EVs in particular, our research shows a premium price tag does not necessarily mean a reliable vehicle. So we would always encourage drivers to do their research ahead of such a significant purchase to see which cars and brands they can trust. And then second, the conclusion by the author of the article, quote, granted, electric vehicles are still a fairly new product in the automotive world but will likely see increased reliability as the technology develops further. Those are exactly correct. We should make wise consumer decisions. We should use the money we've been blessed with wisely. And because of the skills and abilities we possess and the God-given blessings to be able to learn and create, EVs will get more reliable with faster charging and longer range and more affordable long-term costs. But a government forcing a populace to use something that can not only not do what's needed for a large segment of the population, but can't be adequately supported in daily or long-term use, is just begging for failure. I know that for whatever reasons our elected masters have, mostly nefarious, definitely factually incorrect, the bottom line is, it just ain't gonna happen. Have you ever heard the comedian Brian Regan I vaguely remember seeing him on probably Comedy Central when I was much younger. Not sure when, but I remember thinking, this guy is terrible. Well, apparently he's not, as he's done fairly well for himself in the world of comedy. And for the last 15 plus years, his stick has made me laugh so hard it's broken whatever's coating the inside of my lungs free to the point that I'm coughing for a good while after his routine. Side note, he's a pretty clean comedian. I'd personally recommend him. You ought to check him out. Well, he does a routine about him as a kid who either forgot or decided not to do his big science fair project until the morning of, where he pops his head off the pillow, realizing he's in a lot of trouble. As a last-ditch effort, he gets a styrofoam cup, scoops some dirt in it, labels it cup of dirt, and heads to the school. When the judges arrive, he's holding his cup of dirt, and they do what judges do. They ask him, what is it? He responds with, it's a cup of dirt. They follow up with, we'll explain it. He grunts and sighs and says, well, it's a cup with dirt in it. I call it cup of dirt. And all he wants for them is to move on. He doesn't care about his grade. Just, just move on. Well, the article in front of us right now is basically the highly educated, highly paid senior lecturer in paleontology and evolutionary biology at the University of Bath <gasps> version of the cup of dirt. From theconversation.com headline, Future Evolution, From Looks to Brains and Personality, How Will Humans Change in the Next 10,000 Years? The article, written by Nicholas R. Longrich, strives to answer the reader-submitted question, quote, if humans don't die in a climate apocalypse or asteroid impact in the next 10,000 years, are we likely to evolve further into a more advanced species than what we are at the moment? Okay, ignoring the climate thing, that's actually an interesting question. What will humans look like or be like or evolve like in another 10,000 years. Now, right off the bat, the evolutionist and the creationist will have two mostly different answers to this question. Maybe not entirely different, but mostly different. The biggest problem with this article is that the senior lecturer says a lot of words without saying much at all, or at least not much that's actually coherent. He jumps into evolutionary theory and then out of that into speciation. And then he moves around in evolutionary theory by implying the reality of the debunked theory of Lamarckism, which I'll define in a little bit. He moves over to the loss of information, which by definition is not evolution, and on to gains of information, which have never been observed anywhere, ever. He even touches on the fantasy that the creature, the human, can determine a need and evolve a trait to address the need. And the whole time, he's qualifying most of his statements with if and maybe or similar, but he's speaking as if he's relating facts. <sighs> Essentially, this is a disaster. So hey, let's jump into it. Uh, let's get into the answer given to the question and start to point out some of the illogicalities of this worldview. This is a fairly long article. 
I'm not going to cover it all here. I'd suggest you follow the link in the notes. Read it in its entirety. Use your own discernment to determine if what he's saying is fact, opinion, fantasy, or reality. I'll give you a good running head start here. He starts with his worldview. Quote, humanity is the unlikely result of four billion years of evolution, which I'd agree with. It really is very, very unlikely because four billion years is nothing but an unscientific assumption because they need that much time. And it's so unlikely that humanity evolved that it actually didn't happen. Now, he lays out the path we've taken and oh, what a journey, quote, from self-replicating molecules in Archaean seas to eyeless fish in the Cambrian deep to mammals scurrying from dinosaurs in the dark, and then finally, improbably ourselves, evolution shaped us. Uh-huh. He says that through all the mistakes in the genetic code, as it was copied and copied, some of those were beneficial, so we hung on to those. Now, this is stated as fact, but it's totally unsupported and unprovable. It's never been observed, and it's not remotely scientific. He then says that, quote, evolution won't stop with us, and we might be evolving faster than ever. <laughs> Ooh, might be. He starts with the assumption that what they believe evolution has been doing will continue, generally speaking. So he believes that our lifespan will lengthen, will become taller with a lighter frame, will become less aggressive and more friendly and jolly, and will have smaller brains, and then he likens the future us to the human version of a golden retriever. <laughs> he says that the method of evolution has changed with the rise of civilization, the development of medicines, less violence and war in general, and so on. And now, rather than survival of the fittest, it's reproduction of the fittest. Okay, well, I'm not going to disagree with that, but that's not evolution. Evolution is the gaining of information, not the increasing prevalence of a certain existing trait through selective reproduction. That simply changes within a kind. Farmers have been doing that for generations with both plants and animals. He said that we're currently adapting to our modern world. He says that as dairy and grain were introduced into our diets, we, quote, evolved genes to help us digest starch and milk. Likewise, he says that as we packed tighter together, thus making the spread of disease easier, quote, mutations for disease resistance spread too. Well, did they? I mean, this is making the assumption that our bodies saw a need and decided to develop something to address the need. Poof, evolution. I mean, well, first of all, that's not how evolution works, per their own theory. And second, <laughs> it's just ludicrous. Now, from a Christian view, we drank milk and ate grains from the very beginning, or, or very nearly, and we didn't develop any of these abilities. Those that weren't able to fight off disease died. When you're dead, it's a lot harder to reproduce. So those that had the ability to fight disease went on to reproduce. From here, he breaks our future into four categories, which I'll touch on briefly. Then he wraps up with his final thoughts. So he covers lifespan, size and strength, beauty, and intelligence and personality. Regarding lifespan, he says that we'll evolve to live longer. I mean, I think we'd probably live some longer, no idea how much. Even with medical advancements and replacement parts, there is a limit to what this body in this sin-cursed world can do. But here are some interesting things he presents as facts. He says when mortality rates are high, there's no advantage to a being evolving mutations to prevent things like aging or cancer because, quote, you won't live long enough to use them. Okay, that's not science. He's given evolution a consciousness, the ability to think and reason. The theory, their own theory is nothing of the sort. He goes on to explain how pre-civilization turned into civilization, how lifespans changed and they went up and they went down, and then we move to now where better nutrition, medicine, and hygiene have bumped us up to a longer lifespan, and so evolution, right? No. He says, he, he says, quote, these increases are due to improved health, not evolution, but... They set the stage for evolution to extend our lifespan. <laughs> Why? No idea. He, I don't know. He doesn't know. He doesn't even really give an answer to this, except that, uh, you know, because we can now. 
let's move to size and strength, shall we? He says that, quote, animals often evolve larger size over time. It's a trend seen in tyrannosaurs, whales, horses, and primates, including hominins. Except, um, no, that there is literally no evidence that animals have evolved larger. And let me point out that even if they did get larger, that's not evolution. That's just changes inside the kind. But what he's referring to is the evolutionary accepted arrangement of fossils. For example, if you look at the evolution of horses, you'll see that they get bigger over time. Problem is, that order of horse fossils isn't found anywhere in the world. They just found a bunch of different species of horse bones and arranged them in an order that they liked. That's not science. He then tries to prove his theory that man is evolving larger by referencing first the Australopithecus afarensis, which most of us know as Lucy. These were fragments of bone, some found one to two miles from the others and 200 feet deeper. And then they tied them to footprints a thousand miles away from there. And they took the hip and the knee joints and they manipulated those to make it appear that it was an upright walking thing. But when those were placed correctly, this was all monkey. And then he moves to Homo habilis, of which only bone fragments have been found, mixed with many, many other animal bone fragments in a bone bed that surrounded an obvious human hut-type dwelling, meaning Homo habilis was just an ape of some kind. And then he moves to Homo erectus and Neanderthals, which were simply different, fully human people groups, and finally to us. He says that we've gotten bigger, partly from nutrition, but genes seem to be evolving too. He says that longer lives allow us to get bigger, but anyone with half a brain knows that we only grow for a limited time, and then we plateau, and then as we get older, we start shrinking and crumpling back down to earth. He states that women prefer taller men, Okay, well, I'm slightly offended, but that's possible, and, and that's only selective breeding. So, bottom line, think of it this way. If you want a race of only seven foot tall or taller humans, then you let people grow, and you kill everyone that's under seven feet before they can reproduce. You will breed out the gene for shortness. That's a loss of information, not evolution. And you'll still have humans. No evolution involved. Furthermore, there's a lot of evidence that we're actually getting smaller and our lifespans are getting shorter. He also says that our frames are getting more gracile or lightweight and our muscles are smaller. Now, this is the debunked theory of Lamarckism. This theory says that physical traits someone develops or acquires can pass to the offspring. So an absurd example would be if I cut off my hand, my child would be born without a hand. That's not how things work, but that's what this lighter frame and smaller muscles implies. Although it could potentially be possible to lose information for larger frames, the reality is that for those that are still doing a lot of brute force manual labor, their frames develop larger and denser and their muscles get larger. That has nothing to do with passing that to the next generation. It's simply a matter of physical stress. Regardless, he thinks we'll get taller, more fragile, and less muscular. So let's move to beauty. Well, he talks about how 100,000 years ago, people were isolated into groups and developed specific traits. Right, so, you know, maybe the, maybe the 4,000 year ago thing at the Tower of Babel, you know, that historical account versus uh, unprovable speculation. I don't know. He does accurately state, at least I believe, that as mobility increases, it's possible in 10,000 years that we merge various ethnicities together to the point where we all basically look the same. However, he goes a step further and literally implies that males and females will all look basically identical. But, he does give a but in there, maybe due to sex differences, will have more masculine-looking men and more feminine-looking women. So look, I agree that if 10,000 years more goes by, it's, it's entirely possible that we all merge into one basic shade of brown, eye shape, nose shape, uh, hair color and texture, 
you know, all these things could merge into a very similar look. Still humans, though. Uh, still humans. Yeah. Not evolution. Moving into intelligence and personality, he first goes into a long diatribe with rampant speculation as to why our brains have seemingly gotten smaller over the past 10 to 20,000 years, per their theory of how to line up, you know, the various skulls. He admits that brain size has nothing to do with intelligence, then goes on to say that brain size probably has to do with intelligence. He literally has nothing to say here, but he crams it all into six paragraphs in order to say it. And once again, he pushes the idea that maybe at one point our brains realized that, you know, there was a famine, and so they decided to grow smaller. Again, not how evolution works. And, and brain size isn't evolutionary either. Not unless the kind of creature the brain is attached to changes to a different kind of creature. He then makes the assumption that our personalities are changing. We're becoming more docile because we don't have to go hunt for food anymore. Then he says something about how we still have remnants of our caveman brains, eh, but it's possible that aggression could be bred out of us. Again, let's assume that's possible, which I'd argue it's not. That's still not evolution. We're still humans. And then he makes the point that people that are maladjusted, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, they're often some of the most creative or genius among us. Which, yeah, I mean, sure, there are some examples of people that struggled with various mental illnesses and that were very creative or were geniuses. But his fear is that if those mental illnesses are bred out of society, we may lose our creativity. To which I'd say, uh, no? <laughs> and add, that's still not evolution. We're, we're still humans. Now, a summary asks if we could be creating a new species of human. We used to have nine, you know, and if you looked into the other eight, you would actually find that they were either simply people groups with distinct features, just like people groups today, that have possibly died out, uh, but they were fully human, or they weren't humans at all. They were some sort of ape or similar. He talks about how there may be all sorts of divisions based on politics and religion and things like that, and that could divide us and probably won't create a new species, but who knows? To which I say, no, we've already done this back at Babel, and we're all still the same species. Hey, human. He then brings in the discussion of technology. We could screen embryos for desirable genes or maybe eventually modify genes of embryos to fix issues or create certain desirable traits. But again, even if we did that, still human. And that doesn't stop the next generation from having the previous DNA or mutations to the designer DNA from happening. And then he says that with today's dating apps and the associated algorithms, the computer-generated recommendations may change us. But if those systems are used, don't the humans still have the ability to uh, swipe right or swipe left? I mean, you don't have to marry and or make babies with whoever the computer tells you to. And let me point out again, even if it did, still humans. And he wraps up the article with the following, quote, Discussions of human evolution are usually backward-looking, as if the greatest triumphs and challenges were in the distant past. But as technology and culture enter a period of accelerating change, our genes will too. Arguably, the most interesting parts of evolution aren't life's origins, dinosaurs, or Neanderthals, but what's happening right now, our present, and our future. And so the problem is he never gave an answer from an evolutionary worldview. He never speculated about a new creature, some new species different from humans that's not able to procreate with humans. He literally gave the same answers that creationists would give, with maybe the exception of using the debunked missing links and the outrageous, unprovable lengths of the ages. So look, evolution is nothing more than a very silly, unscientific, unprovable, extremely faith-based religion. Their god is time. The creative force is random chance. And with absolutely no real evidence, they must believe that what they imagine happened actually happened. You can check out some of my past episodes for more on the ridiculousness of evolutionary theory. So from a Christian standpoint, if we were allowed to remain for another 10,000 years, what would we look like? Well, we're made in God's image, but God is spirit, so that doesn't necessarily mean physical form. 
But at the same time, we were made in this physical form 6,000 years ago, and after many, many copies, we're basically the same. We're likely a little shorter, maybe a little smaller, but we're essentially the same. The Bible says that God knits us together in our mother's womb. There is no reason to believe that a sovereign God would decide to evolve and knit us into a different type of creature. The systems we were designed with at the genetic level are so well designed and so capable of repairing damages and defects that even in a sin-cursed world, we don't see many genetic errors. So, given 10,000 more years, my thought is that we'd probably have slightly longer average lifespans based on external factors. I believe we'd probably become slightly smaller based on the actual evidence for humans, but likely not by much. I think we'd probably see more genetic defects, either physical, musculoskeletal, or mental, as a result of increasing errors in the code due to many more copies of copies of copies. And I could see scientists 10,000 years from now digging up bones and making the same stupid assumptions based on fragments, brain case size, and the like. What I do know is that in the creation week, man and then woman were the only beings that God made. He spoke everything into existence, let there be, but he made man. Then he performed surgery and made woman. And as David said, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, I personally don't believe that something God took so much care in crafting would somehow reconfigure into something that he did not make. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.